I'm Katie Tregidden, and this is Circular, a podcast exploring the intersections of craft, design, and sustainability. Join me as I talk to the thinkers, doers, and makers of the circular economy. These are the people who are challenging the linear take-make-waste model of production and consumption and working towards something better. In this series, we're talking about repair. I think we need to find is like the hook with people. You know, provide encouraging spaces, encouraging practices, show, show those things, share them, make things easier for people, but not expect that everyone is going to repair all the things tomorrow and, you know, completely revolutionize the way they exist. And I think the other important message that we always tell people is that the barriers to repair are often systemic. So it's not on you to figure out, you know, how to change a a battery in a mobile that just was designed not for that to happen. You know, how are you going to change the battery in your AirPods when Apple itself cannot change the battery? Janet Gunter is the co-founder and outreach lead at the Restart Project and a leading right to repair campaigner. A British-American activist and anthropologist, she has lived and worked in Brazil, East Timor, Portugal and Mozambique, and she's now based between South London and Nottingham in the UK. The Restart Project is a social enterprise that aims to fix our broken relationship with electronics. Janet and her colleagues facilitate people teaching each other how to repair their devices, from tablets to toasters. They work with schools and organisations to help them value and use their electronics for longer, and they use the stories they collect to help demand better, more sustainable electronics for all. You can tune into the Restart Project's podcast, Restart Radio, wherever you find your podcasts. Janet, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real honour to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, I would love to start right at the beginning and understand the role that repair and mending played in your early life, in your childhood as you were growing up. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I don't have like, you know, super memories of mending. I have more memories of making um, uh-huh. and being outdoors and just um, and camping. And um, I would say it's funny because I actually had this one really funny uh, moment where I realized that my dad wasn't so into DIY as, as I thought he was. <laughs> so I was like, wait a minute, you didn't put that drywall in, somebody else did? <laughs> um, and then I was like, wait a minute, what was that book about household DIY, the one where I thought you tiled the bathroom? It was like, no, none of that. Um, but my next door neighbor's father had a wood shop and um, you know, as problematic as it might be, I was kind of just treated as one of the boys. Um, it was the 80s, you know, it yeah. was my kind of way into making. So we definitely um, made a lot and mostly with wood. But um, yeah, it was that creative time, wasn't it? Where um, where materials were things to be used in like any which way. I mean, we used to, my brother and I used to make toys as well. Um but it's funny, you know, there's a, there's a time, I think it's probably around maybe age 10 or 12, when schooling just seems to kind of overwhelm or destroy all of that. Um, and so after about that time, I don't remember being so hands-on, really, yeah, with, with materials and things. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think my, my poor stepfather was uh, father and stepfather to five girls. <laughs> and I can remember building a wall with him. Um, yeah, probably about eight or nine and decided I wanted to be a builder when I grew up. And, you know, that thing of being sort of one of the boys, I think is really interesting when it comes to kind of DIY. And I'm really interested in the gender implications of the word repair versus mending. Mm. Because I think when you say repair or fixing or hacking, you tend to think of sheds and men and wood. And when you talk about mending, you tend to think of textiles and women and I just I think that's really yeah. fascinating because essentially those two words should be interchangeable right? no it's true and you know my mom she uh, my mom's uh, English she grew up um making her own clothes you know in the 60s in England um and she you know she really very much knew her way around the sewing machine and she probably was doing quite a lot of mending and repairs at home that I almost didn't even you know yeah I didn't consider that as I don't know as like a kind of yeah, as, as, the, as the same thing, as one and the same thing. And I, I 
I mean, I wasn't as interested if I'm honest. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, I remember having, you know, I was just, I was, I guess what they called in the eighties, a tomboy. So I just remember, you know, being put in a dress and being like, this is, this is so horrible. And you know, the dress was like handmade. Right. So yeah, um, it is, it's, it is crazy how gendered things were, but then I, and I, and I come back to this. It seems that things are even more gendered now in mm-hmm. some ways. You know, if you go into a toy store or you look at careers and how things are presented to young people, I think in a way, I think it's worse than the eighties. Yes, I suppose at least I was the same as you. Grew up in the eighties, very much a tomboy, and we were kind of allowed to be tomboys, right? That was a thing. That was okay. Um, Yeah. So I guess although it's weird that that had to be called tomboy, at least it was accessible to us. Um, It just didn't feel so. You know, a trip to the toy store didn't feel so. I mean, I I was obviously in the boys' aisles or whatever, but I don't think they were labeled that. I was just in the, you know, He-Man aisle or the, you know, the Lego aisle. But now I think they actually almost, they have, they're gendered with color and with like, even they name them like boys and girls. And I I just, anyway, I'm a bit horrified by all of that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's frightening. And I think you're right when it comes to educational choices as well and and career choices for, for young people. Um, I'm also interested to know about the different attitudes to mending mm. your British Americans. So I'd love to understand mm. kind of the difference between the Brits and the Americans. And also you've lived and worked in Brazil, East Timor, Portugal, Mozambique, London and Nottingham. So yeah. I'd love to understand kind of any insight you've got into how attitudes to repair differ in all of those different cultures mm. and geographies. Well, I'm still learning about, I guess, British repair culture and mending culture. Um, I mean, obviously there. I mean, there's the kind of iconic um, World War II kind of propaganda and messaging around repair and thrift. I think that's like a big part of the British heritage. And I definitely got that from my mom, even growing up in the States. Mm. Um, In the States, there's much more of a kind of libertarian kind of like, you know, I own it. I'm going to repair it. I'm going to, you know, I live on the frontier kind of thing, you know. And there's almost, there is sort of like a, I borderline like colonial machismo kind of attached to repair in the U S and, and we even see that in the right to repair campaigning, which I'm sure we'll come back to. We will. Um, But in the other countries that I've lived in um, you know, uh, the repair cultures are very much shaped by um, kind of certain limitations to access to materials, access to spare parts, access to new products. So um, yeah. And the places I've lived that are, you know, kind of further, you know, much more removed from global global markets, whether that's because there's like, um, um, you know, major taxation on imports, which is the case in Brazil for a long time, or whether that's just you were, you know, you're in provincial Mozambique and you just can't get the things you need. Um, the cult, the ingenuity and the culture of repair and hacking and fixing very much arises from that, um, mm. that need. Um, so, yeah, I've seen, I worked with the most, you know, ingenious and fun people in, in northern Mozambique, farmers who just um, not only repaired things, but also were, were curious about making things. So, you know, making irrigation systems, um, generating energy, like, you know, kind of figuring out the, the nuts and bolts and putting stuff together and making things. And that was really inspiring. And then I, you know, I worked with um, a homeless squatter movement in Brazil where um, there were there a lot of people made money from waste picking. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, they were just, they were fishing really valuable and amazing, um, products out of the garbage of rich people, um, and, you know, refurbishing, bringing them back to life or reselling them. Um, yeah. And in, I guess in mountain Timor, I saw a lot of the same, um, ingenuity that I saw in rural Mozambique. And, um, so I think, and it's, it really, repair culture does really, um, it does change depending on, you know, what materials you have access to, um, what things your, your culture really um, values more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a lot of these places, you know, people don't value technology for its own sake. They really more value technology for what it's immediately going to bring right. to their lives. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's a crucial difference as well. Um, and then, you know, there's, there, in Brazil particularly, there, there has arisen this really playful culture of hacking and it's called gambiarra. Um, and gambiarra is like, it's kind of tongue in cheek. It's like, 
you know, take some stuff that's not necessarily working and repurpose it or remix it. And, and it can be really, it can be kind of like the slacker repair, or it can be something really, um, really playful and silly and giving a, a new life to something that otherwise would have just been considered garbage. And it, it has to do with this kind of all this all this Brazilian culture and heritage of of kind of layering of like mixing mixing right. different things, different cultures. Um, so that's pretty cool. I definitely recommend to read. Um, there's a friend of ours called Felipe Fonseca, um, Brazilian scholar, and he's written some really great stuff about Brazilian repair culture. So go out and read that. <laughs> cool. I will pop that into the show yeah. notes so people can dig that out. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because people tend to think of repair or certainly in British culture, as I think firstly due to the make, do and mend movement that you mentioned during the Second World War as something that we do when we have to, you know, that something arises out of scarcity or lack. And certainly the I did a master's a couple of years ago and wrote my dissertation on, on repair and mending and, and looked at the make, do and mend movement. And I was lucky enough to interview a couple of older people who can remember that time. Mm. Um, and one older lady I spoke to said, Oh God, I'd never, I'd never darn anything now. Or well, well I, I perhaps would, but I'd only wear it in the garden or the house. I'd never wear it out. The shame of it. And yeah. and I think there's this real kind of, uh, you know, this idea that as soon as the war was over, people wanted to move on and put that behind them. And so I think it's interesting. And I, I, I guess the other thing I think about repairs is there was very much the sense of putting it back to to how it was, and it was never going to be quite mm -hmm. as good, but it. It might be enough so that you could manage. And so I think it's really interesting. You mentioned this Brazilian idea of the playfulness and the hacking and turning things into something else, you know, so it's not necessarily giving it back its old functionality, but perhaps giving it a new functionality. And I think that's a really exciting territory for, for mending and repair. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think, but I think that's changing here too. I mean, so, mm -hmm. you know, you look at the visible mending movement and uh -huh. or it's, you know, uh, it, I mostly look at it on Instagram <laughs> um, and you see a lot of the, the big proponents of visible, visible mending are British um, and some of the innovators and people that are doing really beautiful mends. And um, so, and obviously they're inspired by, you know, Japanese mending culture and loads of other things, but it, it does seem like it's 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 arising here in the UK as well. And if you think about also the um, what's happened since, okay, so, so, so since my mom was making mod, you know, dresses in the '60s, then you had punk culture, yes. and you know, punk culture was so transformative, like globally. But it you know it had it largely had its origins here and in fashion, but in a kind of mutant fashion. Yeah. Um, and so I think we can't discount that like that all of those things that have come since, and also one thing that arises from our community here in Britain is definitely a, a sense of um, unfairness and inequality, like a, a, um, a real sense of frustration and anger about that. And a lot of people that come and help repair at our community repair events do so because they feel that the economy we have is unfair, that there's like a, that there's even a poverty premium if you have to buy, you know, a really cheap thing and it keeps breaking you know, a lot of people are motivated by that too, not just the kind of thrift or not just the environmental motivations, but actually the kind of fundamental unfairness of our current consumer economy. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. So why don't you tell us about the Restart Project? <laughs> this is something you co-founded with Ugo Balauri. Yeah. Um, tell us about that initiative and what motivated yeah. you to set it up? <laughs> okay, well, we started running um, community repair events that we call Restart Parties. Um, about eight years ago, and we focus on uh, electronics and electricals. So more or less anything with a battery or a plug, but we obviously have some limitations on, you know, um, high powered <laughs> appliances and microwaves and things. But so when you, when, when, when you come to Restart Party, you get greeted by kind of a front of house or person who um, will register and try and figure out what's gone wrong with your device. And then we'll pair you with a volunteer who has skills to sit down with you and try and figure out what's gone wrong and um, and go through a fix. And it's a learning experience. It's not just like a free repair shop. Uh -huh. And these events, you know, they kind of snowballed. We started them in our own neighborhoods in North and South London about eight years ago. And we expected, of course, there would be a mountain of, you know, stuff and just endless demand for repairs. But what we did not anticipate was so many people really wanted to share their skills. Mm. And that was what was so beautiful is that, 
um, these people I was just mentioning who are motivated by you know, different motivations, but they come out of the woodwork. And there are people who really wanna share their fixing skills you know, in every neighborhood, in every place across the country. And, you know, in that, in these kind of repairs, electricals and electronics, they're often kind of a very solitary activity in some way. Uh Um, And so bringing everybody together, it it immediately, almost immediately created this kind of community of repairers and people sharing skills and, you know, enjoying going to the pub together. And um, so that, that was the real revelation for us was like, wow, you know, this is powerful. Um, and these events are happening all across the UK and all really all across the world now, many inspired by the Repair Cafe in Holland. Uh-huh. Um, and, and everywhere it takes on its own kind of local dimensions and its own local flavor. So I couldn't say that our activities in London have scaled, you know, I and mean, we, we've been able to create a network in London that's really great. And, you know, it's, it's very cohesive, but, but outside of London, it looks different. So in Mm. every place, you'll find a different, you know, group of people with a different kind of maybe a slightly different ethos or different identity, but, but we're all united by this, this idea that, um, that we kind of need to regain our repair and mending muscle um, and that we should do it together. Yeah. You talk about it as a people powered social enterprise. Mm -hmm. Why is the, why is the people powered bit so important? Yeah. It is important. I mean, we, so when we started, we, um, we had nothing. Um, and so we, we definitely were scrappy. We were just doing these community events and we thought, okay, well, there's clearly something here. And our volunteers pushed us also to not just to do these events and kind of deal with the downstream wreckage of this economy, but they said, we need to fix this system. The, the products that we're seeing are not meant to be repaired. Um, this is, you know, supremely frustrating also repairing low quality stuff. Yeah. Um, so they pushed us from the very beginning to kind of become more of like a campaign and advocacy group. And that's, that's kind of why we say we're people, people power, because not just in terms of the activities that we do, but the actual kind of our reason for being and our strategy is very much is driven by the people who, you know, who've been involved, um, in contributing their skills. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting because I was, I was going to ask you why you think mending and repair fell out of favor, because I've always had this sort of uh, timeline in my mind that sees this big peak during the Second World War and then a drop off and then a return relatively recently. But you just mentioned the punk movement, which I had never thought of as mending or hacking or. And of course it yeah. was. So yeah. what do you think the timeline has been in terms of the popularity and the kind of ebbs and flows of, of yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I just saw this um, big YouTuber um, video about uh, plant, planned obsolescence, and you know, um, it was really brilliant when he kind of observed the um, the cycles in product design that you see these days, right? The kind of, uh, especially in relation to these uh, these mobiles. You know, he was saying, um, you know, for a couple of years, it's square, it's a square bezel, and then it becomes a round bezel, and then it becomes a square bezel again. And I wonder whether, um, you know, the similar kind of thing happens with repair and with mending, and you know, that you have these kind of boom bust cycles of interest. And, mm. and ultimately they probably come back to a kind of a, a, a mainstream versus a counterculture, this kind of like yeah. um, yin and yang in a way, because, because I grew up, uh, well, I really grew up, grew up in the nineties. Like I was a kid in the eighties, but for me, grunge was massive. And, yeah. um, and grunge was again, it was again, it was like maybe, what was it? 15 years later after punk, it was, we're raiding our dad's closets again, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that was massive for me. And I think that I've seen that, I've seen that happen. And, and, and maybe, maybe I don't know, has anyone mapped this, but, but maybe these cycles also follow some kind of boom bust with the economy or, or there's yeah. like a lag, but they-, but they Yeah, they it's, it's really interesting. When I was researching my dissertation in 2008, somebody, uh, an academic whose name escapes me right now, said that uh, Darning had died out. And yet I did a word search on The Guardian for where the word darning appeared. And in 2008 was exactly where it picked up again, which, of course, coincides with the financial crisis. So I think she was probably absolutely right. You know, the period of her research and she sort of made that statement right at the end of that. And then we had the financial crisis and it picked back up again. Sounds like a great dissertation topic. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, I could completely rewrite my dissertation now. (laughs) Well, I was also thinking in terms of like, um, you know, the study of pop culture, like under related themes. Have you have you ever heard there's like a correlation between 
interest in zombie films and and also um, the economy. So the boom bust of the economy as well. Wow. I wonder if you could even correlate, you know, kind of interest in certain kinds of horror, zombie and yeah. uh, repair culture. Oh, yes. Yes. There's definitely a PhD in that, I think, isn't there? Um, so, I mean, I guess my interest comes from a sustainability point of view. Mm. And I guess one of the concerns that I have is that sometimes certainly the visible mending movement as one example can be seen as something that's quite middle class mm. and quite um niche you know not everybody can go to work wearing visibly darned clothes um some of us are very lucky that we can um and one of the things i was looking into in my dissertation was is is this visible mending movement something that can go mainstream because to quote uh, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson in, in a book called All We Can Save, which I adore, to change everything, we need everyone. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in how we make this stuff more accessible. What do you think are some of the barriers to mending and repair and how can we overcome those to get more people involved? So I guess, you know, the the challenge we have, like if you if you're if we're talking about like our survival on planet Earth, the challenge we're facing is huge. It's yeah. so big that it's it's really it's difficult to make the argument to someone that they have to change all the things all the things all the things at once right and so i i don't think for example i'm wearing a jumper that actually needs a visible mend but i've been too lazy to do it or i've just been too concerned with all the other things that i've you know i'm working on um and i think we need to find is like the hook with people you know provide encouraging spaces encouraging practices show, show those things share them make things easier for people but not expect that everyone is going to repair all the things tomorrow and you know completely revolutionize the way they exist and i think the other important message that we always tell people is that the barriers to repair are often systemic so yeah. it's not on you to figure out you know how to change a, a battery in a mobile that just was designed not for that to happen you know how are you going to change the battery in your airpods when apple itself cannot change the battery so i think we need to also when you know encouraging people to, to make a change themselves we need to also always reinforce that it's not only on you it's yeah. not only on you and if and if if it makes more sense for you to campaign to change the system instead of, you know, darning a sock, then please go ahead and do that. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to us about the right to repair movement. I feel like this is the perfect yeah. moment. Now, not everybody will understand what that phrase means. So could you start by just explaining what the right to repair is? Yeah. So, um, yeah, because a lot of people say, oh, well, who stops me from picking up a screwdriver right? or, you know, <laughs> trying, giving, having a go? Well, I guess the point of the right to repair movement is that you can pick up that screwdriver in many cases, but the system has been rigged against you you will not achieve that repair. And there's a number of reasons why. Um, so, you know, increasingly things are being, as I, as I guess I mentioned with the AirPods and other things, they're being designed not to be repaired. Um, and that's just, that's an actual choice that manufacturers are making. And, you know, they could say that, oh, that it's consumer preference and it's price and it's this and it's that, but ultimately they're making a choice. They're putting out products that cannot easily be repaired. Also, there are, other, there are two other practices that are making repair much more difficult. So back when I was growing up, you know, in the in the 80s, you'd buy a hi-fi equipment and it would probably even come with a schematic with the actual, you know, you could see the you would how the thing was made. And oftentimes it would come with a some kind of repair manual or something. Those uh, basically companies have used copyright and intellectual property to cut off all access to those increasingly. Um, and you can come across them on the dark web. But should we have to be on the dark web? You know, <laughs> um, and then there's the issue of spare parts. Who hasn't been in this situation where, you know, you, you, you pretty much know what's wrong with a thing, but you cannot find a reliable quality spare part. And you're on eBay or something trying to find, you know, I mean, that's not for everyone. And so spare parts should be, quality spare parts should be basically made available for everyone, for everything. And that's less of a problem with, with white goods at the moment than it is for electronics for the most part. But the right to repair describes basically a, a host of kind of policy measures which we can take to make sure that we take away all these barriers, that things yeah. are designed to be repaired, that we can access spare parts and that we can get good information about how to repair them. Yeah. And I mean, there's also the thing that often you invalidate the warranty, right, by taking the back off and 
Yes. Yeah, so in the U.S., in fact, this is quite interesting. So the the battle for right to repair has has mostly, um, you know, it, it mostly came up in the U.S. first, um, and you know, I, there's a whole history of all of that. But in this moment in time, it's interesting because obviously the Biden administration has taken over the Federal Trade Commission, and um, finally, all of the evidence that we have that shows that manufacturers are telling people they're avoiding warranties. And they're doing it illegally in the U.S. because it's not allowed. Is going to be resubmitted to a much more friendly Federal Trade Commission, and we hope that they'll take action because that's that's illegal in the U.S. They've, right. they've made it clear that uh, repairs don't void warranties, like repairs on other pieces of an item don't void the whole warranty. Uh -huh. In the U in the EU and and in the U.K., it's much more of a gray area, and we need much more we need much better guidance on that. Um, there's so many issues to deal with. It's incredible. But there has, from what I understand it, been a, a recent win in that the UK mm -hmm. has agreed to go along with EU legislation that means as of this summer, yeah. manufacturers will be legally obliged to make spare parts. And the implication of that is they're hoping the lifespan of products will be extended by up to 10 years, reducing waste and carbon emissions. I mean, is that the win it's being made out to be? Okay, yeah. So was, let's get into this. Yes. So here's the problem with the way that the government spin on all of this. And and I would say even the EU is slightly responsible for making it sound like it's finished, it's solved, you know. Um, the EU, those they're called eco-design measures. And so and because you probably have a geeky audience, I will go into a little bit more detail. Yes. So let's. yeah, eco design gave birth to those, you know, those labels that we have on white goods, the, the rainbow label, the kind of A to whatever F. Um, and those were to rate the, the eco efficiency of an appliance during the use phase. Well, Europe finally realized that um, actually there's embodied energy in all the things we use. So all the energy that went into the manufacturer should be taken into consideration mm -hmm. when we're thinking the whole life cycle. So what they decided then is for certain, especially for certain products, um, we need to be looking at uh, yeah that that energy in in manufacture. And the implication is that for many products, um, more energy goes into their manufacturer than is ever used during their whole use phase. And the implication of that is that we need to use things for longer. So they decided to broaden the remit of eco-design, not just to look at the use phase and the energy efficiency when you plug it in, but actually to, to force manufacturers to make things that will last for longer. And repair is, is the way in. Now, they've only done this for a couple of products. So the way it was reported widely was that we have this for everything. But in fact, we only have it for... Um, fridges, dishwashers, washing machines, and TVs. Um, right. Those are the products. So we, the, all the other products, all the other things in your house, we still have to fight for. We need to continue to push for that. And we don't really have, I mean, from this government, we do, <laughs> um, this is the government that just recently, you know, completely scandalously destroyed the Green Homes Grant for, for you know, eco-efficiency in, in our houses. So mm -hmm. We're not going to trust them until we want to see this. You know, we want to see eco design. We want to see right to repair for it. laptops, um, mobiles, all the other products. And Europe is pushing forward. Uh -huh. So we don't know really what the plan is here. They're still consulting. I'm using air quotes, consulting everybody. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're not it, it, it's not nearly over. So what does what what are we calling on the UK government to do here? Is it a question of following what the EU are doing? Do they need to be doing more than that? What's the what's the ask from the okay? Right to repair the movement? ask is and you know, it's it's you know because they always say they want to do better, right? So we'll say okay, great, you can do better than Europe because actually Europe only offered up the right to spare parts and repair documentation to professionals. Um, they've only offered those to professionals. They haven't offered those to DIYers and people. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if we want to do better, easy. We offer right to repair to everyone, including the person who wants to do the repair on their own machine at home. Yeah. Um, and we, yes, we stay, you know, aligned with Europe as they expand these measures to other devices. That, uh -huh. That's, but we offer it to everybody. And that's a pretty straightforward message. Um, but we're going to get a lot of pushback. Um, yeah. The one, the one thing we really do agree with the industry on, though, Industry wants the UK 
to stay aligned with Europe on this because it's a nightmare for them as well. And you know, Europe has the it has the resources, it has the ability to actually regulate on this um, mm -hmm. to create a whole nother parallel process um, is is disastrous. And also for us as civil society because. We really struggle to keep up with what's happening in Brussels on these regulations um, and to kind of create two, two parallel processes and, and to ask us to be able to keep up with industry and all the lobbyists and all the processes, it's really going to be difficult. Yeah, it's a lot. I'm trying a few different ways of supporting the podcast this time around. So we'll be back after a short break. And thank you so much to everybody who helped to make this season happen. If you're a designer maker, here's what I want you to know. None of this is your fault. Climate change, ocean acidification, falling biodiversity levels, none of it. But you do get to be part of the solution. And the best part, that gets to be creative, collaborative, and filled with wide-eyed curiosity. Remember that? Visit katietregiddon.com forward slash membership and leave your eco guilt at the door. Find a community of fellow travellers clear, actionable steps you can take today and all the support you need to join the circular economy. Visit katietregiddon.com forward slash membership. I'll see you there. Are there manufacturers who are sort of leading the way and, and doing more than the law currently requires them to? Um, there are. So here's the issue for the most part of manufacturers. And you may have had this experience, you know, in your professional life as well, is that, you know, you'll often get, a, you know, a very enlightened kind of flagship product, a really amazing product that, you know, a team has worked on and they've been given a special license to make this amazing thing. And then you have a whole back catalog of rather scandalous other products. Um, and so for us, it's hard to say that one manufacturer is doing you know, is doing a great job. There are examples that prove to us that they can do it. Uh -huh. You know, so for example, Samsung says, you know, oh, consumers want really skinny mobiles. And if we, you know, if we, if we make them repairable, then we undo the waterproofing and we undermine the durability. But actually that's a lie because in their own catalog, they have devices that that satisfy all of those requirements that are durable, that are repairable, right. you know, that, that consumers do like. Um, so, Duolets yeah. are always giving us the example, aren't they? Duolet toasters. That are, that they are. are however, however, so the toasters that are made in the UK and the, the high-end toasters are brilliant. But look at some of the rest of the products they make. And I mean, I, I you know, I don't, I can't say, but I, I, don't, I can, I can see that they're not made to the same standards. Right. Um, yeah, and I, and I believe that they don't supply spare parts for some of those other products in their catalog. Right. Okay, yeah. so they're kind of they're proving that it can be done, but not necessarily doing it right across the catalogue. Precisely, and I guess, and and you know, they would probably come back and say, well, you know, consumers they want the cheaper thing, and what we say to that is like, you know, look at the thriving secondhand market of dualet toasters. Actually, the high end ones, people yeah. people actually do really want your high end one, and they don't even care if they would necessarily get it secondhand. So, look at a, a company like Patagonia with its worn wear. You know, th this idea that you could, you can reinforce your brand by ac and actually make and, and take advantage of the fact that people want your products secondhand, like make that as a, you know, use that to your advantage instead of, instead of producing, I mean, Patagonia, as far as I know, doesn't have a, a cheap crap line for people that don't want to pay. Instead, what they've done is they've made it easier to get their products secondhand. Um, yeah. And uh Christopher Rayburn's done something similar in that okay. he's launched a whole range of clothes, which they haven't actually made at all. They've just found them. And most of them are kind of army surplus wear that have never been worn. They were just sort of overproduced and they've sort of uh, curated a collection and put the Rayburn yeah. badge on them. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And, and there are people sort of going, well, couldn't I just get those from an army surplus store? And Christopher Rabin said, yeah, go for it. You know, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's a good that's a good example. It's like I, you know, I'm, I'm a, a trade shopper. Like I love going to trade the shops because, you know, back in the day I was at the you know mega warehouse kind of like, you know, I was going through every last piece of clothing. But in, in this stage of my life, I want to go, I want the selected version. I mean, yeah. it's just, I yeah. don't have time. So I think we really need to reimagine our consumer economy. And I, I do think we need to keep in the regulations. We do need to keep thinking about this kind of poverty premium issue. And yeah. we need to make sure that manufacturers are not allowed to 
overcharge for spare parts or ridiculously inflate the cost of products just saying, oh, well, the regulations made us, you know, put up the price. I think we need to, we do need to be sensitive to this issue of fairness and access. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, not everybody can afford a Geolit toaster, right? So I think that, you no. know, we have to have products that are available at lower price points. I, but, but as I think, you say, yeah. there shouldn't be a, a sort of knock-on effect that that then needs replacing every six months. No, and ultimately, it's all about creating the demand for those products and working with manufacturers, you know, in, in negotiating with these manufacturers, ultimately the companies that are making things in China. And if we come with enough demand for better products, we're going to have a much stronger, you know, negotiating position to kind of like, you know, and, and we're going to come up, we're going to get better products for cheaper. It's, mm -hmm. um, but we, but it's, you know, it's, and in fact, we've had interest from organizations that work on quality and standards in China you know, they want to understand what, what these new regulations mean for them and, and mm -hmm. how demand will be shifting. So it, I mean, it's an exciting time, but this, this shift, this change that we need, it feels so urgent. And a, a lot of times uh, the, the, the policy changes feel so incremental. Mm. Um, yeah, so a, little, a little tokenistic sometimes, let's yes. say. Um, yeah. we've, we've talked a little bit about equality and this one project that you've been involved in, which really mm -hmm. caught my eye, which is the laptop donation mm -hmm. project that you undertook during the pandemic. And that was about making sure that kids had access to the kit they needed for homeschooling. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I'll let you talk about it. <laughs> well, so for us, you know, we, we, we focus on repair, but we've always been friends with organizations that, that reuse, that take mm -hmm. something and give it a second life. And we've, we've always had people coming to our events even, who've gotten things off of like free cycle or they've gotten things free and they want to fix them to give them on to someone else. And so when the pandemic happened, we started listing initiatives that were collecting laptops um, because we knew that people wanted to give them away and we knew that there was demand. Um, and, and this last lockdown that happened at the beginning of this year, 2021, um, there was a huge groundswell, partly driven by BBC, um, for donating laptops and, and finally looking at this issue of digital access. And um, it did, it created a, just an absolute massive tidal wave of donations to all the groups on our list. Um, and we started working with some of them in London to repair the kind of the ones that they could, you know, the ones that they, on their, their factory line of wiping, preparing for reuse, they just couldn't do themselves. Um, but the amazing thing is, and I, I really think this is like a shift to transformation for people, is that I think the average person at home who is watching those BBC appeals was like, oh, you know, that, that five-year-old laptop that maybe I had some boot problem or some frustration with that I just put in the closet, in the cupboard, <clears throat> it can have a second life. You know, it's, it's, um, it, it is a valuable machine. And I think, I think that's um, really, that's massive because we've been saying for years this, you know, if you, if you put a solid state drive in an old machine, it, you, an old laptop, you, you breathe new life, it's a new machine. We've been saying it, but I think the message has finally reached people that, um, that a laptop isn't obsolete after five years. Mm -hmm. it, it can have a second life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's absolutely brilliant. And people are connecting the kind of the, the waste environment climate agenda with the you know, fairness and inequality issues. And that is absolutely brilliant. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting, you know, the second tenet of the circular economy is to keep materials and objects in use. And we tend to think about repair, but actually part of, you know, I've got a laptop sitting in that bookshelf behind me. I mean, it's about 15, 20 years old, so it, it might be beyond all sort of rep all repair. But I think, you know, this idea that all of a sudden families had to have a device for every person in the household, mm. you know, and even some of my friends who are, you know, very comfortably off the kids would play on their laptops. They wouldn't each, you know, I, I, I have a friend who's got, she's married, she's got three children. They don't have five laptops in that house. But when they're all working from home and all homeschooling, all of a sudden that's what was required, you know, and they're pretty comfortable. And yet, you know, most people have probably got an old laptop tucked away in a bookshelf somewhere. And so I think it's really interesting, as you say, how we can start to connect the sustainability environmental waste piece with the kind of equality fairness Piece. And I think I think that's a really interesting connection that that project was just a beautiful uh, yeah. illustration of. Well, we were hoping in also, you know, in relation to um, food and nutrition and um, kids access to food. I mean, this campaign, you know, for for meals and for access to healthy food for kids 
in the UK has been really big mm. and it's been, it's been kind of sustained. And I think that we need something similar in relation to laptops. This problem is not going to go away because everyone is back at school. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really limiting factor for a lot of young people that they don't have a familiarity with computing. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's true that a mobile is a computer, but it's not the experience of computing that you would have in a workplace or in higher education or wherever you may end up. And so I think we really need, people need that. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a disadvantage that a lot of people still have in this country. And I hope mm -hmm. we can sustain the interest in it. Yeah. I think it just makes me think I can remember a friend of mine who's a teacher complaining that her kids were spelling the word great G R and the number eight. And I just, <laughs> It's just occurred to me that perhaps that's because they're spending all their time on phones, text messaging, rather than on a laptop typing things out longhand. And I'd never made that connection before. So yeah, no touch typing. I mean, when we did a we did a summer school for asylum seeking youth, and we you know they got to kind of basically upgrade and rebuild a computer and take it home. And we asked them, you know, why do you want the computer? And many people were like, touch typing. We need to know how to touch type. You know, wow. we're you know 16, 17 years old, and we don't know how to touch type. And you know, that really, it, we take it for granted. We, we really do. Um, I, I touch type with five fingers. Okay. <laughs> I think I just missed that moment because mm. of the age I am. Right. How do you feel that opinions towards mending and repair are changing? It does feel really good. I'm, I mean, you know, we're at, we've been at this for, I guess, eight years. And I, I think at the beginning we thought, uh-oh, like we're just before our time. We're just a couple of years too soon. It's like, can we survive until the point when, you know, this will come? And um, we did, we survived. And now it feels, um, it feels a bit like, you know, we've left orbit, we've made it all the way to the other planet and we're just about to enter the orbit of the other planet, but we haven't, we're not anywhere close to the, you know, the lander going down. Like there's still a lot more in this kind of, well, this or moonshot, let's say, um, there's still a lot more that has to be done. And if we, and if I think about it, you know, in my lifetime, I'd, I'd really like to look back together with everyone else and think, wow, like what a just incredibly wasteful time we lived in. Like, you know, look back and just think, how is it possible that we did this with electronics? Um, and you know that maybe in my lifetime we will even have kind of heirloom computers. Um, and whatever devices they will be, they might not be mobiles or computers, but but maybe that could be something that we have within within our lifetimes. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. For I wrote a book called uh, "Wasted When Trash Becomes Treasure" and interviewed my dad about his childhood. And my dad's older, so he was born during the Second World War, um, and it was really interesting that talking about his childhood, there was almost no waste everything was used or repurposed and I wonder if by the time I'm his age I could look back and we've got back to that state that would be a, a really pleasing arc to sort of get back there are you are you hopeful about the future do you think we will we'll get to that point where we can look oh. back and say yes we did it <laughs> it really depends on the day honestly I mean it, it's 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 hard you know looking at and also you know not just we can't just focus on the environmental crisis yeah, it, it we're, there are so many people ground down by this the kind of form of capitalism that we live under and by the, you know, just the, the global, the sheer global demand for natural resources and land. And, you know, I've worked on land rights in the past. And, you know, sometimes it does feel really hard to see how this is all really going to play out um, for so that everyone can live on the planet. And, and I'm, I'm not even just saying, you know, you know, I'm not just saying I'm, biodiversity is obviously important to me, um, but I'm saying live on the planet, like, you know, how humanity, like, what is our future? And I mean, I think what I like to focus on is, is, is what, what's happening that's good um, and kind of uh, reinforcing that and nurturing that. And, um, but, you know, globalization is so strange, you know, you, you see in parallel, you see amazing movements of people helping each other transforming their lives making things better on on a, on a micro scale but then also linking together and then you see this you know when you look at the big picture i mean what you see in terms of just our sheer consumption and destructive appetites globally it's it's 
sometimes you, you can't allow yourself to even look at that because it's overwhelming. I mean, do you remember the, the Ever Given when it was blocking the Suez Canal a couple of weeks back? I mean, the sheer size of that ship, it's, we, don't, we don't have the ability to comprehend how big mm -hmm. that is. Um, and in the UK, we create seven Ever Givens of electronic waste a year. Wow. A year. And like, I, so I, you know, sometimes I, I like to just kind of maybe slightly refocus on, on smaller initiatives and, but linking the smaller initiatives and linking this kind of alternative um, movements and less on the big picture because sometimes it just feels too yeah. much. Yeah. I was, I was listening to another podcast um, recently called How to Save a Planet and they were, they were saying there's no silver bullet solution to this. You know, this is a phenomenally complicated problem, but it will be solved by thousands of us trying and failing and trying again. And I just thought, actually, that I think that's kind of what you've got to do. You've just got to work out which little bit you can make a difference to and just keep your head down and keep making a difference. And, and I, I think that's all we can do. Yeah, I, but I think it's super important that we in rich countries and we privileged people in these rich countries because they're not everybody is rich in rich countries yeah is that we we, we adopt a kind of environmental justice perspective yeah and that we understand that we, we really truly look at how um you know how the way we live um has impacted certain populations and mm. you know that we have that we we owe a debt to the world um mm. it's really massive and um yeah, I, I think until we understand that, even in our own back garden, so, you know, looking at incineration, looking at um, air pollution in cities, um, looking at who's actually already paying the price in our own back garden for our lifestyles and, and understanding that and, and making amends for that, then I mm -hmm. think, you know, yeah, we're, we're kind of, we run the risk of just I don't know, doing collectivism or sharing stuff on Instagram and, you know, not, yeah. but, but not really fully coming to grips with, you know, yeah. with our kind of place. There was some interesting research that came out of Norway recently that said that if the whole world adopted a circular economy, the economy would improve. There would be more jobs. There would particularly be more jobs for women and people of color. You know, it would just be a, a wonderful outcome. However, if only Norway, and by that, I think we can assume only developed nations mm -hmm. adopted a circular economy, that would be great for developed nations. However, it would be disastrous for developing nations and women and people of color would suffer the most. And those are also yeah. the people who are most impacted by climate change. So I think we have to, in the, in the complexity of this problem, we have to understand the intersectionality of it. And yeah. I, I think climate justice is a really important term because it's about you know, doing exactly what you guys are doing, which is saying there's a there's an inequality problem here and there's a sustainability problem here and we can do this thing that, that addresses both of them. And I think those are the, the problems that we need to work to solve. I don't think we can solve the climate crisis in a vacuum. You know, I think no. it's it's so connected with, as you say, the way that we've been living on the planet and treating it as something that we can just pull resources out of and off yeah, of other people's countries. <laughs> I know, and it's like, and we and then we're gonna kick away the ladder. You know, so we're going to we're going to get yeah. all those things. We're going to go, you know, have all of our great holidays and do all the things and then be like, oh, 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 sorry, we did it. But no, no, you can't do that. Yeah. So it, this is um, this is massive. And it's something we need to think about. And at, if COP26 actually happens this year, you know, I, we're not the only ones saying this. We need to address consumption emissions. Mm -hmm. We need to, it's that, that in a way the negotiations are laughable that they don't address consumption emissions because we have these headlines like the UK has reduced its CO2 emissions by half or whatever. Yeah, well, actually a lot of that was just exported to other countries, which are always blamed in our tabloids for being, mm. you know. You so know, just, just unpick what consumption emissions are for people yeah, who aren't so, familiar with that term. So basically we used to make a lot of things here in the UK and we would have, we would have emitted the carbon here in the UK. So you would buy, I don't know, a washing machine from the UK or a car from the UK. And we would count those emissions as ours. Now as well, uh, successive governments have basically wrecked industry and, and we, we, we now import most um, manufactured goods inside of those goods come embodied emissions, come emissions that were made somewhere else. And mm -hmm. for the most part, they were made in Asia and, and for the large part, China. And, you know, those are, those are counted on, on the books as Chinese emissions. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really important, isn't it? Because we, we can sort of sit here feeling smug and blame those countries for producing all the carbon, but it's our demand that's creating that carbon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. I feel we could talk for hours, but um, <laughs> I'm conscious of everybody's time. So um, perhaps you could just give us a, a sort of a final thought to wrap up a, a note of a note of hope that we can all keep our eyes on amongst the, the you know, being conscious of the realities. Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, like I was saying about um, uh, with the um, laptops and people connecting the dots between, yeah, inequalities um, and consumption and, um, you know, and the way our consumer economy works, I think things are changing. I mean, we've seen big YouTubers come out in favor of, um, of repair and reuse and, you know, basically saying that, you know, shredding something, recycling it is the absolute last resort. And so we've, you know, this, these are YouTubers with millions and millions of followers. So it's really brilliant to see that we are moving past recycling and that people are, you know, there's a real sense of like change and critique in relation to our stuff and the way, the way that we're buying stuff. I mean, a good example was Sonos Gate. I don't know if everyone remembers this last year, but Sonos basically discontinued support for some of its speakers. And you know they they encourage people to recycle them, but most people were scandalized by the idea that they should just go and recycle something. Like, why did it get, you know, and and why couldn't it be reused by someone else, for example? Mm. Um, and so that caused a huge groundswell that we weren't expecting. So we think that you know that attitudes are really changing. Um, the question is whether policymakers are going to keep um, keep up with you know the public's um, outrage and interest, but. I guess that's our challenge. Yeah, so. yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Janet. That's been absolutely fascinating. Loads of okay. loads of food for thought there that I think people will be really interested in. So thanks so much for your time. Great. If you enjoyed this episode, can I ask you to leave a review and perhaps even hit subscribe? I'll be honest, I don't really understand how the algorithm works, but I'm told those two actions really help other people to find the podcast. So that would be amazing. Thank you. You can find me on Instagram at katietriggan.one. You can subscribe to my email newsletter via a link in the show notes. And if you're a designer maker, you should really join my free Facebook group, Making Design Circular. See you there. This episode was produced by Sasha Huff. So thank you to Sasha, to October Communications for marketing and moral support, and to you for joining me. You've been listening to Circular with Katie Trigidden. 